The history of science and medicine you were taught in school doesn't tell the whole story. Our legacy is full of unsung heroes who made incredible contributions that just haven't been recognized. And there are too many suppressed stories of exploitation under the guise of scientific research. As biomedical scientists and seekers of justice, we want to uncover the hidden side of science and make these stories known. People of all races, genders, nationalities, sexualities, and abilities have always been essential to pushing the field forward. It's time for us all to reclaim the bench. Yes, we are. Okay. All right. So, welcome to Reclaim the Bench, episode five. I am Megan. And I'm Jamal. And we are your co hosts. Jamal, after we went through an hour long shuffle to <laughs> figure out where to record, how's your week been otherwise? The week has been, um, it's been okay. You know, it's been busy. Mm hmm. Just like I'm sure your hat, yours has, because we sit right across from each other. Yeah, we know. We know how busy <laughs> each other has been. <laughs> Definitely. And um, we do have a lot of exciting things going on with the podcast, though. We have um, a lot of interviews that's kind of that's going to kind of be coming out pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of interviews to be scheduled set up that will take us into the new year, after the new year. And then we have, you know, our regular content coming out. Yeah, definitely. I think it's been like, it's been over a month since we last recorded. Maybe closer to two months. Yeah, since, yeah, since we've actually recorded. Because we pre-recorded a lot of episodes. Yeah, yeah, we were ahead of the game and then all of a sudden it kind of slipped. Yeah. Got really caught up in work stuff. So, before we start today, we would just like to thank a few people for their support, and for their work on the podcast. So first of all, the people who have donated to us that we'd like to thank are Maureen Milligan, my in-laws, the Graham family, and also my grandparents. Um, Actually, both of my grandmas have been really big supporters of the podcast and um, both tell me all the time how how much they've enjoyed the episodes and how much they're learning, and I really appreciate their support. And also other people in our neuroscience grad program have been big followers since the beginning. So, Yeah, I'd like to shout out a couple of our um, loyal followers Mm -hmm. and colleagues. Um, Alex Glather, Shirley Shu. Am I missing anybody? Yeah, those have been our biggest followers, but we've gotten feedback from a lot of um, other graduate students and postdocs. Um, But as far as like on social media, they've been pretty loyal followers. And also a special shout out to Danielle Tomasello from The Social Scientist, mm-hmm. who, through her organization, has been really active and doing things and have been on Twitter and have been highlighting a lot of our achievements. A place where I'm also a mentor um, mm-hmm. through The Social Scientist and also have just requested a mentor. Oh, nice. Yeah, I didn't tell you about that one. Oh, cool. Yeah. I should look into that, too. Yeah. Yeah. So check out the Social Scientist. It's an awesome site for science mentoring, and Danielle's doing a great job in putting that together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even if you think um, you're the stuff, right? Like you can, <laughs> um, because I know I'm the stuff, right? But <laughs> no. But seriously, my my biggest, um, I guess, my biggest sort of 
pitfall is science communication. Um, mm-hmm. Even though we kind of communicators now, mm-hmm. but really communicate in my science. And mm-hmm. so I sought out a mentor for that. I didn't tell you about it, but I requested a woman who's an editor at Cell Press. Oh, cool. For Trends in Molecular Medicine. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a meeting with her next week. So I'm going to talk to her about how to best communicate science with friends and family and with colleagues Mm -hmm. from the same discipline and also from different disciplines. And also, hopefully, she can give me some pointers on manuscript preparation and what she looks for as an editor. So I think think it's going to be a great uh, session. And she actually writes about these things, too. So I read some of her articles about that, and I'll pick her brain next week. That's really exciting. I can't wait to hear what advice she has for you. Yeah. I'm going to be piggybacking on that. <laughs> yeah, I'll share. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, anything else that we want to talk about before we get started? Uh, nope. I think that's it. Uh, we appreciate the following, the support, the retweets, the likes. Yeah. Subscribers. And um, we're going to be coming out with so much more content that um, we hope that you guys continue to follow us and continue to spread the word. We're growing pretty organically. I know we wanted to see a spike in our followings and we've been looking at the analytics, but it's still on a linear trend. And it feels good that we're doing work that, that we feel passionate about mm-hmm. and people, people enjoy it. Some people. Yes. Yeah, some people. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't really had any opposers yet. We're not that popular. That's true. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, we need a couple haters so we can like, you know, be good. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Thank you so much to all of you who've continued listening to us, family and friends. I know that you're all doing a great job of spreading the word. So it's been pretty awesome. So what are we talking about today? So we are talking about Dr. Dorothy Lavinia Brown, also known affectionately as Dr. D by her patients. I can just picture that. It's so cute. They're like, hey, Dr. D, (laughs) tell me what's wrong with me today. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So you can kind of get an idea that she is like a maybe more humble and mm-hmm. welcoming and um, had good bedside manner. Yeah, right. I think so. And she was a pretty exceptional person in a lot of regards. I think I have like three or four things that she was the first to do really? in here in the notes. So I won't even say which is which. You'll just have to find out. <laughs> yeah. And um, this story, much like things that we... Uh, topics that we've covered before sort of unintentionally carry the same theme, right? Mm-hmm. What's, what, what do you think that theme is? <laughs> uh, definitely resilience. Resilience, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we've talked about this before, and we don't seek that out in these very special people that we cover, but we notice that um, a lot of these people start off with rocky lives or not necessarily being the best at something, mm-hmm. but tend to really... Um, hit their stride once they determine it, put their their eye on a certain target and yeah you know figure out what they want to do and also they these people that we're covering they don't wait for someone else to give them permission to do something yeah they're not looking for this outside approval like often they're facing intense barriers of people telling them don't go into this field don't do this thing yeah but they continue with it regardless. Even Dr. D, right? Yeah. You know, a oh, couple yeah. times. Yes. Um, You're going to hear about the discouragement that she faced. Or, yeah, a few times throughout her career. So speaking of not necessarily having the best background or best upbringing, um, 
what did Dr. D's early life look like? So it was not really the ideal childhood that we would picture. So she was born in the early 20th century in Philadelphia. I saw a few different sources said she was born in 1914. Some said 1919. It wasn't really clear which is which was correct, but um, she was born in the 1910s. Her mother moved to Troy, New York soon after her birth, which is kind of close to Albany. And her mother left her in an orphanage at the age of five months. So she was a single mother. She was probably facing poverty. And at this time, there really was not a social safety net at all in the U.S. Um, I guess we have a little bit of a social safety net now, still not as much as it should be. But she ended up being dropped off at this Troy Orphanage, which is now known as Vander Hayden Hall, or the House on the Hill, which kind of makes it sound like a spooky haunted house. Yeah, I looked it up. It yeah. didn't look that spooky. I was, <laughs> I wanted something a little bit more yeah. terrifying, but <laughs> still. Yeah, so she lived here from five months when her mother dropped her off to age 13. And when she lived here, overwhelmingly, the other children were white. And Dorothy Lavinia Brown was African-American. So when I was looking at pictures, every single child was white. Already she was kind of not surrounded by people who looked like her. And this was obviously not a very tolerant time in the U.S., as if it is now again. But (laughs) even worse. Um, So the interesting thing about orphanages at this time is that Many, if not most, of the children were not actually orphans. They had living parents, just like Dorothy. She had a living mother, but their parents just couldn't care for them financially or emotionally. They had a very regimented life. It was basically like living at school all the time, I guess. They lined up to go anywhere. They couldn't speak to anyone else at the table for dinner. So you have all of these children sitting next to each other for dinner, and they were just expected to look down, eat their food, not look or talk to anyone. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty intense. I know. And she lived here for a very long time. Yeah. Her the entire years, yeah. 12 years. Her entire formative years, she lived in this orphanage, which was just like discipline. And they all lived on narrow cots next to each other, simple hand-sewn clothes. And in addition to their on-site school, all of the children had their assigned chores. So it doesn't seem like they were actually mistreated it wasn't that kind of horrible orphanage thing that we think about now but regardless we know from multiple scientific studies that were done in the 20th century that the lack of emotional contact given in an orphanage can be very harmful to a child's emotional development and so for that reason actually we don't have orphanages in the U.S. anymore we have uh, the foster care system instead. And so I just went on like a little bit of a sidetrack to learn more about the foster care system because I didn't really know much about it. And as someone who wants to be a child psychiatrist, a lot of the children who need that kind of special care are children who are in foster care because they've usually experienced some emotional or physical trauma or abuse. So one of the studies that came out And 
the reason that we no longer have orphanages and instead have foster care is a study that was done with monkeys that would be completely unethical now. But they basically took baby chimpanzees, I think, away from their mother at a very, very young age. And then they put them in a cage with a cloth figurine of a monkey. And then the other one was a wire monkey that just had like a bottle in its arms. So the baby monkey could choose to either go to the cloth monkey or the wire monkey with food. Um, They were both just like figurines of a monkey. So what would be like the psychological differences between the two? So the cloth one was very warm and comfortable. The other one had food, which they need to survive. So what the researchers found is that the baby monkeys preferred to spend pretty much all of their time with the comforting cloth figurine instead of the monkey that was providing food. They would occasionally move over, drink some milk, and then they would just go straight back to the cloth mother. And they learned that infants basically need a lot of touch, affection, comfort, and that is just as important, if not more important, than the nutritional support that they are receiving. And another study was done in an actual orphanage in Romania, and they were studying the psychological development of children who grew up in an orphanage. And a lot of times, these children, it was a ratio of like 11 kids to one caretaker. Um, So obviously, that caretaker could not spend her whole time caring for each individual kid. They didn't receive a lot of attention. Babies would just be laying on their backs, staring at the ceiling, no enrichment at all in their environments. They would rarely be held or touched or comforted. And basically, it just completely stunts their development. They don't learn how to be attached to other people. They also don't learn as easily because they weren't enriched during that time when we know the synaptic plasticity is really developing. So all of that has come together that now we know it's much better for people to live in smaller environments with families rather than in this huge institution where they don't get individual treatment yeah and adoption was around of Mm -hmm. course at this time but can you imagine living with someone that you look at as your brother or sister Mm -hmm. and then they go off and leave you behind to go live with a family yeah and you just have this anticipation that maybe you might be caught next and so for somebody like dr dorothy brown that time never came for her Mm-hmm. She actually, even though she was adopted, right, she never was selected from the orphanage for adoption. She, and that adoption didn't come to, she was like, what, 15? Yeah. So what happened actually, when she was 13, her mother tried to come back and reclaim her. Her mother decided now she wanted to be a part of her daughter's life. Mm-hmm. But it seems like she wasn't very fit to be a mother and Dorothy didn't like staying with her. She actually ran back to the orphanage five times. Wow. Five times her own biological mother came and tried to take her to live with her. But apparently she didn't treat Dorothy very well and she preferred the orphanage. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and we we don't know much about um her mother or mm-hmm. her early life, but just what we do know is that she was born in Philly, mm-hmm. but she was already in an orphanage in Albany, outside of Albany and Troy, by five months. So her mother could have been very young, could have been fleeing a bad situation, Mm -hmm. 
we don't really know what happened, but we do right. know she was given over to the orphanage. And we do know that whatever happened when she was like 13 years old, like yeah. it wasn't a conducive environment for our home. Yeah. So we don't have a lot of information, but we do know that obviously Dorothy didn't want to be there for whatever reason. Yes, exactly. I actually learned that my own great grandfather grew up in an orphanage in Rochester recently. Really? Yeah. How'd you learn that? There was some essay that my grandma found of her husband's father, so my great grandfather, where he wrote about his time in the orphanage. Mm. It was pretty interesting. You so, did you read it also? Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you ever meet him? Your great Oh no. No. He died well before I was born, but mm. um I think he had a very hard life. As you can imagine, yeah. growing up in an orphanage. Yeah, so, definitely. so yeah, this was just a thing back in the 1900s, and it no longer exists today. So, but this institution still exists. Yes, it does. The Vander Hating mm-hmm. Hall is it? Yeah, they actually have like some type of formal education system ingrained into their services. So mm. it's not exactly an orphanage, but. It's a facility that houses children that don't have families, but also offers them education. They're even New York State Regents accredited. Okay. So um, it seems to be pretty helpful. I think there's like 600 individuals that they cater to from what, yeah, I only got to that because I wanted to look at the house on the hill. Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, I might as well just click and see what they do now since Mm -hmm. it's not like a haunted house. Right. Which is what I was expecting. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it didn't exist today, but again, not in the same capacity right. where, you know, you just have like an orphanage with a bunch of children whose mm-hmm. parents died or like, gave them up. Yeah. I think the foster care system is a little bit more robust now and, yeah. you know, children don't have to go through that. Right. Yeah. So when I was reading about it, the foster care system The preference is to place children in homes with families for either temporary or permanent care when their family members, their biological families are no longer able to take care of them for whatever reason, whether that's money or um, some sort of addiction by their parents or some other situation. The goal overall is to reunify biological families once um, whatever situation occurred is resolved. Um, so that is often what happens. Some children who need a lot of extra support may need this sort of residential care. So that's probably what the house on the hill, Vander Hayden Hall is providing Yeah. for those kids with really severe trauma or behavioral problems that aren't doing so well with families. Mm. They need more rigorous care. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Brown was eventually adopted, right? But. This was after she left her mother for the last time, Mm -hmm. went back to Detroit Orphanage, then, Mm -hmm. you know, took it upon herself to enroll in high school. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, So Which I guess wasn't an option for mm -hmm. her at the time. So she had to flee in order to attain this. Yeah, exactly. So it seems like, I don't know whether this was true for both boys and girls or just girls, but for high school... The orphanage didn't provide them with that education, so they were expected to work. Mm. So she was working as a mother's helper, so I think like a nanny, and also in a laundry shop. 
but she really wanted to go to high school. She just really wanted to get an education. So yeah, she just fled and decided to enroll in Troy High School, and she was homeless. Um, We don't know how long she was homeless Mm -hmm. before the principal realized this, but at this point, yeah, he placed her in a home with Lola and Samuel Wesley Redman, who I guess were a really good family for her. They were a great source of support and security for Dorothy, and they ended up adopting her when she was 15. So she ended up in a family eventually. Wow. Yeah. That's that's great to hear. Can you uh, imagine, though, just like being 15, being so determined to go to high school that you're willing to just be homeless on the streets just yeah. so you can get an education? Yeah. And this principal had um, at least the awareness to say, hey, this young girl needs a family. Mm-hmm. So instead of sending her back to the orphanage, mm-hmm. he was able to find her uh, parents that yeah. would adopt her. Yeah. And for the parents to adopt a 15-year-old woman, young girl, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I don't have much experience with it, but I can only imagine if a child is not adopted very early because it's challenging mm-hmm. at 15 years old, they, yeah. they must have felt like they were taking, you know, a huge leap of faith. Definitely. And it worked mm-hmm. out because their their child became really successful. Oh, yeah. Which we'll find out, right? Uh, extremely successful. Yeah, she um, she took these circumstances and she thrived regardless. So, but did she do well in high school? Yeah, she did amazingly well. She graduated as the valedictorian in high school. So, despite being raised in an orphanage, being homeless for part of high school, she still graduated top of her class. Wow, she was amazing. And this was in the 1930s. Again, we're not really sure about the dates. Don't know if it was 1933 or 1937. But regardless, she was top of her class. Yeah. Really incredible. Mm-hmm. What we do know that in 1937, she did enroll in college, right? Yes, that's right. So do you want to tell us more about her college career? So she got a uh, received a scholarship from the Troy Conference of Methodist Women. And she went to Bennett College, which is a part of the United Methodist Church. Mm-hmm. And also we'll see that she went to another uh, HBCU mm-hmm. that was a part of the United Methodist Church. And so she worked as a domestic servant. And we don't really know if this was during high school, after high school, or if it was during college, right? Yeah. We don't we don't really know. Yeah. Um, but we can imagine that she had some type of employment uh, during college. Uh, one of her employers was the Women's Home Missionary Society that said that she had an ability that needs to be developed. And so it's clear she must have been a standout student here also. Yeah. The Encyclopedia Women in Medicine, mm-hmm. is that what it's called? Yeah. Says that college administrators tried to discourage her from being a physician and instead tried to push her towards teaching. But she didn't like that idea mm-hmm. and persevered, right? Yeah. Uh, but. Do we know what she studied as an undergraduate? No, all I saw was that she received her BA, but there was no information on what her subject was. Okay. But she knew she wanted to be a physician, even though, I mean, this was the 1930s. Women weren't going into medicine in huge numbers. It wasn't really seen as a feminine thing to do. Yeah. Teaching was much more socially acceptable. Yeah. So the administrators kind of tried to funnel women towards that direction. 
But, I mean, think about it. Like, think about how much this woman has already overcome in her life. She's only, she's in her early 20s. She's already lived in an orphanage, um, knowingly given up by her mother, which you can imagine the kind of emotional trauma that leaves. Yeah. She forced herself into high school, living through being homeless, which again, we don't know how long she was homeless. And living in New York ourselves, we know how unforgiving the weather can be. Yeah. Like, we don't know what kind of situations she was dealing with. Yeah. Um, and so she gets to college, right? Like, overcoming all of these odds. And they're like, oh, don't be too ambitious, honey. Like, go be a teacher. And she's like, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've overcome way too much to not follow my dreams at this point. Even at this young age, um, she had so much experience already saying yeah. no and yeah. already doing what she thought was best for her. Exactly. And um, it's clear that she didn't listen to those individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that she already knew she wanted to be a physician, mm-hmm. but that happened earlier than college, though, yeah. right? Yeah. So from the little we know about her childhood, she had her tonsils removed at age five, which is what actually made her want to be a doctor, which is really kind of cute. Like, yeah. just a little surgery made her want to be a doctor. And actually, back in those days, pretty much everyone, every child got their tonsils removed because they thought it would stop them getting so getting sick from just normal colds or sore throats. Mm. We don't really do that anymore because there's no reason for it. There's no good evidence that it helps unless it's blocking their airways. Yeah. But back in the day, they used to just take every kid's tonsils out. <laughs> so she could have been terrified after yeah. this process mm-hmm. of getting her tonsils taken out. But apparently. Yeah. Instead, she was inspired. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she finished um, her undergraduate education in 1941. Mm-hmm. And we don't really know what she did during that time or. Yeah, well, World War II was happening at that time. So I think everyone was kind of putting their career goals on hold. So what she ended up doing was joining the war effort as an inspector in the Rochester, New York Army Ordnance Department, which is my hometown. Yeah. So Rochester's come up a few times lately, actually. Yeah, in our interview just last week mm-hmm. with Harriet Washington, who spent a lot of time in Rochester. Yeah, yeah. Who else? I feel like it came up somewhere else. Me too. I feel like it did. <laughs> I love anything that has to do with like upstate or western New York. Me too. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. We got to really focus on it, even yeah. though it's just one tiny footnote. <laughs> <laughs> but she was there for a few years. So, you know, shout out. But yeah. So then after that, you mentioned another HBCU was part of her past. So do you want to tell us more about that? Yeah. So um, after graduating, again, um, she spent the time in Rochester for a few years and In 1944, she attended Mary Medical College, another HBCU in Nashville, Tennessee, which is also associated with the United Methodist Church. Their mission today is focused on opportunities for people of color and improving care for um, disadvantaged populations. Yeah, and I came across this very interesting story about why it was founded. So Meharry or Mary College calls it the salt wagon story. In the 1820s, a white teen named Samuel Meharry is hauling a huge wagon of salt through Kentucky. The home state of uh, Mitch McConnell. Oh, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> we try not to be too political. But, you know, just, but it's pretty yeah, hard just, not yeah. to. <laughs> he just won again. Oh, um, someone so slimy yeah. controlling our Congress. Yeah, exactly. Uh. 
but uh he's a turtle yeah. he looks like this <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna come for us uh, i don't care <laughs> the boogeyman um so yeah he was um he as in samuel mary was not uh, mitch mcconnell not mitch mcconnell <laughs> <laughs> was uh, hauling a huge wagon of salt through Kentucky when it slid into a ditch near nightfall. And he couldn't get it out. So he didn't know what to do, but there was a cabin nearby, and an African-American family lived there. They had either escaped or been recently freed from slavery. So when he came knocking on their door, they were risking their freedom by housing and feeding him because he could have easily gone to the authorities after that and mm. told them there's this family living in secrecy here wow. hiding out from slavery which would have been very low <sighs> yeah extremely but i mean yeah. you know how terrible people how low people would stoop to enforce slavery but regardless knowing this risk they took him in and they gave him a place to stay for the night until he could figure out how to get the wagon out in the morning and this act of kindness stuck with him so profoundly throughout his life that when he was an adult and had earned some money he vowed to repay their kindness and with his four brothers they donated money in 1866 for a medical college specifically for the benefit of freed peoples so yeah this one act of kindness by this family ended up being the seed that started this medical college that is such an incredible story yeah wow that's such an incredible story Mm -hmm. So, when did she graduate? In 1948, Mm -hmm. um, with her medical degree. And then, after that, she left Nashville and went to New York, where she did a one-year internship at Harlem Hospital, but was denied surgical residency. Yeah. Sounds pretty familiar. Yes, it does. Same time frame. Charles Drew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, literally just the same time frame. Surgical residency Mm -hmm. for the same reasons, right? Like, not... Um, wanting African Americans to mm-hmm. be involved with hands-on training. Yeah, and for and her, surgery. it was also because she was a woman. Yeah, so she had the two strikes against her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which they probably thought she was unfit. And, oh yeah. You know, there are plenty of quotes about that. So she decided to become a surgeon anyway. <laughs> and here's one first: uh, she was the first black woman to become a surgeon in the American South. So she faced a lot of resistance because people didn't believe that, um, again, a woman couldn't uh, could handle the rigor or constitution to make it in surgery. Yeah, so. which to me sounds like projection because women are actually known to have a higher pain tolerance and a higher ability to deal with blood. But at the time, they're like, no, we got to keep them out. They yeah. can't handle it. They're just going to faint all the time. Yeah. <laughs> When actually we know that's not true. I was just um, donating blood a couple weeks ago. And it was all women donating blood. And it was all women nurses. And so I was talking to the nurses and I was like, there's no men here. Like, what's up with that? Because actually they would be better candidates to donate blood because being small, smaller when you're a woman, um, and also women usually have lower red blood cell counts, it takes more of a toll on your body when you donate blood than it Mm. would on like... A larger man and they were like yeah it's always women or predominantly women who are donating and they were like and actually the men faint way more no like way. they'll just like stand up out of the chair and pass out oh my god yeah because first of all they can't deal with blood <laughs> and second of all i guess when men feel like they're gonna faint sometimes they think 
they don't want to tell anyone about it, yeah. so they'll just try to carry on anyway, and then they just oh, go that's down. Embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. So uh, maybe you should donate some blood, Jamal. Tell your tell all the men in your life. Well, I didn't donate blood, but I asked you to bring me back a shirt. Yeah. And you donated blood, and you brought me back a beanie. They didn't have any shirts. What do you expect me to do? They always have shirts. You should have asked. <laughs> Hey, where are those shirts you're hiding for my friend who decided not to donate blood, but feels entitled to a shirt anyway? Hey, I thought it was just the medical students that were donating blood. I thought they only wanted medical student blood. <laughs> yeah, we have special blood in the medical school. <laughs> but anyway, so clearly she had the constitution to make it in surgery, and she pro- proved that later. So the chief surgeon at Meharry, the place where she got her medical degree, was Dr. Matthew Walker, and he decided to take a chance on her, even though there were all these naysayers being like, she can't make it, don't let a woman into the program. And again, the double strikes of being black and a woman, just she faced extra barriers. So she completed her five-year surgical residency from 1950 to 1955 at the George W. Hubbard Hospital at Meharry Medical College. And she became an assistant professor of surgery in 1955. And so here is another first that she accomplished. She was the first African-American woman fellow of the American College of Surgeons. Pretty impressive. Yeah. And the American College of Surgeons is around now, right? Yeah. Is that what you see on surgeons' jackets where it's like F-A-C-S? Yes, F-A-C-S or F-A-C-O-S. I don't know much about surgery. <laughs> yeah, but but it's something that most surgeons should yeah should do, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it gives you more legitimacy. Yeah. To be a fellow of this college. Wow. So yeah. So she she was a legit surgeon mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah, and they recognized her like her legitimacy. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, and then she also had impressive accomplishments in her personal life. Yeah, you, you kind of mentioned something early on about um, the orphanage and uh, being able to develop relationships mm-hmm. and things like that. And I, I don't know, like from reading the notes that you put together and um, some articles about her, if this had any influence on on it mm-hmm. or if she was just a super like motivated person who had like her eye on a prize. But um, she was unmarried, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but she wanted to... She wanted to have a kid, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess an opportunity popped up that's probably not so common now. Yeah, right? I don't think it would be ethical today. <laughs> yeah. But in 1956, after finishing her residency, she had just established herself as a surgeon. And again, unmarried. Um, uh, she was unmarried, but a young unmarried patient uh, had a baby and begged her to take the child. Mm-hmm. So... Again, this was breaking a lot of patient-physician boundaries uh, that would exist today. Yeah. But she agreed. And another first, she became the first single adopted mother in Tennessee. Yeah. So um, I can imagine that, again, like her life, you know, and her story and her past probably shaped the decision to do that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, And even though it may be frowned upon now, it probably still wasn't that common no back then i wouldn't think so yeah yeah but, but you know still she probably was like this is a godsend and yeah. um you know she took uh this child in right and, and she, she just she knew what kind of life a child would grow up with if they were unwanted yeah and she wanted 
to have a child and she yeah she decided that this would be the best situation for all of them so and paying homage to her adopted mother Mm -hmm. she named her daughter lola yeah it's really sweet yeah so Mm -hmm. that was pretty sweet and um later she also adopted another child a son uh, named kevin yeah right yeah so this is 1957 so she's the first single adoptive mother in tennessee she's the first african-american woman surgeon in the south and here she is with those two huge responsibilities on her shoulders unexpectedly raising this baby on her own working really hard on this career that people didn't even think she could withstand but she actually thrived she did so well so from 1957 to 1983 she was the chief of surgery at riverside hospital in nashville professor of surgery at Meharry Medical College, and she was the educational director of the rotation. Wow. She was just killing it. Yeah, she was. (laughs) And then, interestingly, this is actually how I heard the name of Dr. Brown. I read about her in Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts that we've talked about before. Yeah. There There was just a line or two about her, but talking about her involvement in politics. Um. Which actually, Dr. Levi Montalcini last time was also involved in politics. Yeah. So it's right. it's pretty interesting, especially because I think both of us have realized, know how important politics can be for people's individual lives. Yeah. And the expertise that someone in science or medicine has can be really useful for yeah. um, the people that they're trying to serve. So it's pretty cool that these women found politics as a, an arena where they could also use their influence and education. And, and we still need more people with scientific and medical backgrounds mm-hmm. involved in the decision-making processes. Yes. But I guess after you work so hard to be a physician, which is a higher paying, maybe more prestigious or more rewarding job, yeah. who wants to go be a part of the House yeah. of Representatives or the Senate? But then again, you know, do we want people with political science degrees or law degrees being solely responsible mm-hmm. for making decisions and legislations yeah. about things like health care exactly. and um, laws regarding abortion mm-hmm. and things like that, right? Yeah. So, and as we've seen with COVID, they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. Yeah, they really need people with medical expertise. Yeah. At the very least, listen to the people who have studied this their entire lives Yeah. and take that advice, but... Yeah, so if for some reason you're listening to this and you do have a background in science or medicine and you're like, maybe I should go into politics, maybe you should. Maybe you should. <laughs> Reach or... out to us. We'll we'll talk to you about it. <laughs> yeah, or at least go into uh, science policy. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is would be more from the lobbying perspective of yeah. trying to influence um, government and mm-hmm. local government officials to, you know, employ certain laws and yeah. regulations. So. That's also an interesting career. Mm-hmm, definitely. I, I'm not sure if that's something we're going to do. No. <laughs> but we want you to do it. Yeah, exactly. We'll support you. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to tell us about her political career? Yeah. So uh, in 1966, she was asked to run for a seat in the state legislature and won, becoming again another first, the mm-hmm. first black woman representative in Tennessee state government. There she served one term uh, for two years in the House of Representatives. Um, and tried to run for state senate in 1968, but her big platform was on liberalizing abortion rights in Tennessee, which apparently people didn't like. Yeah. So what is liberalizing? 
Okay, so when you think about liberalizing abortion rights, like... It sounds extreme. It does sound extreme, but at the time, no. (laughs) What she meant by liberalizing, at the time, the only time that abortion was valid was in a case where the mother's life was in immediate grave danger. So what she wanted to do was just expand this access to people who had been victims of rape or incest. Mm. So really severe cases that... Otherwise, it was legal to end this pregnancy that was usually was unwanted. So that's what she meant by liberalizing. It's yeah, not just people. It's going, not that radical no. of an idea for a woman to want to make a decision about her body in yes. general, but especially in a time where yeah. uh, it's a case of an unwanted baby and yeah. it's an emergency. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But even this was too much, apparently. And the proposed bill lost by two votes. So she was just too radical, I suppose. But I think a lot of it came from, you know, her background. And she knew the trouble um, that an unwanted pregnancy uh, could cause. And that was her platform. Mm -hmm. Although her bill that she proposed lost by two votes, she was instrumental in helping pass the Negro History Act in Tennessee public schools in order to recognize accomplishment made by African-Americans for one week yeah one week let that sink in yeah their entire rest of the year they could just talk about white people but for one week yeah one week only she's like can we just talk about black people for one week guys yeah she was liberalizing uh yeah liberalizing (laughs) she's passing the liberal agenda achievements so um so and white people are clutching their pearls like my rights (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how dare you yeah. one week it's a long time <laughs> but uh th- this was uh in recognition to negro history week uh which was the precursor to black history month which mm. was founded by the african-american historian carter g woodson um in 1926 oh cool yeah so in addition to her devotion to kind of like women's rights and children's rights She was very interested in expanding recognition and opportunities for African-Americans. She was a lifetime member of the NAACP. And with her work throughout her life, she actually won a number of awards. She won the Humanitarian Award from the Carnegie Foundation in 1993, the Horatio Alger Award in 1994, and the Surgical residency at Meharry Medical College is now named the Dorothy L. Brown Women's Residency, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that is Mm -hmm. is really cool. Yeah. And she lived until 2004 and died at 85 years old. Wow. Yeah. What a long life. I know. Exciting life. And humble, right? Like you never heard of her. Nope. She's just not well known, but... Another trend that we have with these super resilient, important figures, but with... Not so much recognition yes. of some of these mediocre people and mm-hmm. also people who have done very harmful things, which is why we have this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We're shining the light in the correct spots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do. We do need to, um, you know, talk about some more sinister things. Dark things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah we, we, we do. I think we've been putting them off because the world has been so dark exactly. lately. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> But um, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about Dr. Dorothy Brown uh, during this time specifically was because we thought it was pretty timely in her desire to expand abortion rights. 
And so one thing that Killing the Black Body kind of, Dorothy Roberts does a really good job of pointing out is that um, reproductive rights means the right to choose not only whether you don't want to bear children, but also the right to choose to bear children. And that is also a right that has kind of been tried to be stripped from people of color, African-Americans, Native people, and Hispanic people, and also poor people. Yeah. So that's probably something that we'll talk about a lot more in a future episode. Yeah. It really ties into eugenics, which we've yeah. touched on in the past. Yeah, we've touched on that. We've touched on forced sterilization. Mm-hmm. And an episode we released last week that for an interview we conducted a few months ago with Dr. Lisa Nicholas, we yeah. also touched on um, things you were just talking about, like mm-hmm. physicians even today telling women of color who they feel have too many kids mm-hmm. to stop having kids yeah, and um, telling them that they should get a hysterectomy. And yes, mm-hmm. it, it's just not, you know, as we heard from Dr. Nicholas, it's just not their place to suggest a, such a thing. Yeah, so. exactly. Exactly. And Okay, so this is something that I think most people probably don't know. And I didn't know this until I did the research Mm -hmm. um, about when abortion became political in the United States. Mm. Did you know this before? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, then I'm going to tell you something new. Teach me. All right. So before the 1860s, terminating a pregnancy was actually not very controversial. Mm. Um, It was done for probably the same reasons it's done today. People couldn't afford to have a child. They weren't in the place to have a child at the time. They were worried about their health. Uh, There are a whole variety of reasons why sometimes it's not best to bring a child into the world. Not best for the mother and also not best for the baby. And that's what Dorothy knew, Dorothy Brown knew as someone who grew up in this orphanage full of children who weren't wanted. They had a really hard life because their parents didn't want a child. And she ended up doing fine, but she's actually really an exception to the rule. Most children who grow up in orphanages have a lot of trauma that they carry with them. Mm. Yeah, so before the 1860s, it wasn't something that was really widely talked about, but it also wasn't illegal. It just was something that was done. So... It didn't begin as a religious argument, actually, which is what we think of now. We think of it completely tied to religion. Yeah, that's what I thought. Exactly. So even the church had a policy on it. They didn't consider it a problem until quickening, quote unquote, when the mother can feel the baby kicking. They thought this was the period at which the soul enters the body. Mm. And that's like a few months into the pregnancy, actually. So they had a policy on it. They considered early term pregnancy terminations okay Mm. because to them it was a clump of cells that didn't have a soul yet but that's not the policy anymore it became politicized in 1857 by the american medical association Mm. not a religious association a medical association they did this in an attempt to limit women's access to birth control and fertility control and family planning because women were starting to get more interested in going to medical school. They were starting to apply in bigger numbers. And the patriarchal structure of the medical school was threatened by that. And so they knew that one way to control women's career opportunities is to control their fertility, Mm. to force them into having children, becoming mothers, and both 
physically and like responsibility wise, pushing them away from the medical field. And do you think that this is a loaded question, but do you think that women today in um, these professional fields experience discrimination during their training or during their employment because of the possibility they may have to leave and give birth to a child and get married and things like that? Oh, definitely. It's not technically legal to discriminate Mm -hmm. on those grounds, but it definitely happens in like under the table ways or just kind of like comments that people will make or if a woman has to leave her residency for a few months and there's no protection in place for that. Like if a woman gives birth during residency, they don't have any way of kind of having someone else fill in. So the other residents have to take on her shifts Mm -hmm. and that leads to a feeling of resentment. And that's like, you can find other solutions. You can hire other people for that time or like divide the responsibilities better. It doesn't have to be the situation where you're creating resentment against a woman because she's having a baby, which is a very, very common thing and should not be punished Mm -hmm. and causing her to feel guilty, the other residents to resent her. Like, and also it it definitely affects whether women are considered for promotions because if people think she's too busy with family life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and the time that a woman takes after childbirth, if everything goes well, it's not even a lot of time. It's only six weeks. Yeah. Right, like who wants to give their six week up baby to daycare yeah. or whatever and mm-hmm. go back to work? And I will say that us as Americans are kind of on our high horse when we look at other countries, mm-hmm. um, the ones that come to mind, like China and Russia, yeah, um, as being like super like authoritarian mm-hmm. and rigid. But actually, we don't really value that time that it that needs to happen with both a mother and a father to yeah. raise a kid. Mm-hmm. But there are countries that do, mm-hmm. right? There's yeah. European countries where the mother can take off for a year. Yes. And then the following year, the father takes off for a year. Mm-hmm. And it's paid yeah. for the employer because they actually value that intimacy and that time. Exactly. In raising a kid. You know, that's something else that I was thinking about is that if we have parental leave, not just pater- or maternity leave, yeah. Yeah. parental leave in general, that would actually reduce the stigma significantly because mm-hmm. then you have yeah, a knowledge yeah. that mothers and fathers are sharing this wow. parenting responsibility. And then it becomes way less stigmatized because anyone with a family is taking this time off. And you don't push it directly onto the woman only. And also, yeah, it's just better for the baby. It's better for the parents' mental health. It's better for the finances. It's better in every way if we had more parental leave. That is, uh, that's pretty brilliant. And uh, we should, you know, yeah. we should consider. Maybe we should go into policy. <laughs> yeah, we should talk to people we want to go into policy. Yeah, exactly. Them, uh, mm-hmm. Push that forward. And I know this is still like on a sidetrack from what you were talking about, but mm-hmm. it's important to think about the experience of giving birth and what women go through and how undervalued that is. Because a postpartum depression is also a very serious thing. Yes. And if women only have uh, six weeks mm-hmm. and then they're forced to kind of return back to work, postpartum depression can last for like two years, three yeah. years. And um, it, it is very serious. So yeah. Um, yeah. And it's exacerbated by being stressed, being sleep deprived, separated from your baby. Yeah. You don't get to bond as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah. And then and if you have leave, like how long is that medical leave mm-hmm. for here? Okay, we'll give you six months to recover, and we have to terminate you after that. If, yeah, you know. So, mm-hmm. and this is bringing up a lot of issues that should be addressed. I know. I kind of think that we should have a whole episode on reproductive rights and 
parenting and I feel like we just come we keep coming back to like the health of women of color mm-hmm. that seems to be like really central to a lot of the healthcare issues we have yeah. in the U.S. and we we don't do it well mm-hmm. and we need all hands on deck yes uh, medical practitioners sociologists and social workers psychologists mm-hmm. and psychiatrists uh the employers you mm-hmm. know the, we, we we need all hands on deck to recognize um these issues and put Yes. things in place that help this process become uh, more seamless for mm-hmm. women in general and women of color. Yes. Yeah. So reproductive rights, basically, the bottom line is that they have been used to control women for a very long time. And one of the people who pushed this uh, policy, who was really f- um, pushing the AMA towards politicizing abortion, his name was Horatio Storer. And he is also known as a father of modern gynecology. Mm. Is he well-deserved? No. No. <laughs> of course not. So I'm thinking maybe we'll have to do a future episode oh, on him. Horatio, we coming for you. Yeah. <laughs> He's quaking in his grave. <laughs> and another interesting fact is that despite these eugenic arguments that it was all these people of color and poor women having abortions... Actually, many abortions were being sought by white, um, upper middle class, educated, often married women. So that's not the demographic that you picture as this morally deprived mm-hmm. um, demographic that they're trying to that they were trying to portray. Yeah. It was actually women who were very well off and even married and just for whatever reason chose not to or could not carry a pregnancy. Mm. So it's very interesting the way that people can. Uh, change the truth to suit their narrative isn't it yeah and i had no idea about this before was it 1857 yeah um and why mm-hmm. that happened i really thought it was always just a religious argument yeah because that's so did we, i that's what so we did i mm-hmm. Hmm. yeah and of course making abortion illegal doesn't mean that fewer are happening it just means it's more dangerous This is especially true for poor women because people with means could often go to either another country or they could find a doctor who's willing to, if they pay them enough, do it in secret in a controlled and safe environment. But poor women, I mean, literally coat hangers, like that's what you hear about. And that's literally what they were suffering through. It's a real thing. And just because the law says you can't do it doesn't mean it wasn't being done. Exactly. And it ended up being more harmful Mm -hmm. um, than not. Very much. So interestingly, if we think about the religious thing again, at this time, like in the 1960s, so when Dr. Brown is trying to get this legislation passed, um, reproductive rights are really coming to the forefront politically. Some concerned pastors and rabbis set up the clergy consultation service on abortions to help women find safe abortions. Wow. So they, some of these religious people were actually recognizing the harm that was being done to the women and prioritized that over a fetus. And they would help these women find safe abortions. Wow. I really, yeah, I think that we will probably do a whole episode on reproductive rights in the future. But as we know, Roe versus Wade became a monumental court decision in 1973, made abortions legal across the U.S., but it is still being contested today, Mm -hmm. and that's why we thought it was kind of timely. 1,074 cases have been brought in states to try to limit its power since, and we've only seen that ramping up in recent years. 
Yeah. E- even in 1973, it mm-hmm. was already being contested. Yeah, exactly. Right after the Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. in 1973. Yeah. So, and still now. Yep. And this is a reason, again, you said we should cover this in a future episode. Uh, you know, we have the new Supreme Court justice. Mm, and Amy are, Boney Carrot. Yeah, and we're... That's the only thing I'll call her. <laughs> Where do you come up with this? <laughs> I saw it online. <laughs> People were trying to give her um, an initial nickname, like RBG. And I'm like, no, no, no. no she does not deserve that. No. She is only Boney Carrot. Yeah. That's the only name she can go by. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> But we have to wait and see if this will is something that will come up again. Yeah. So um, we have to be vigilant, all of us, I think. Yeah. So we need to have an episode dedicated to women's reproductive rights, mm-hmm. eugenics, mm-hmm. and it's probably going to be a multi-part series. Yeah. So we should just also... do seasons from now on. And I know. Just dedicate right? an entire season to interviewing individuals and covering episodes. Yeah. Regarding that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, if you have thoughts on that or people that we should talk to, yeah, please let us know. Or if you're listening and you want to get involved, mm-hmm. let us know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, when we started this, we we actually thought that it would be we would kind of struggle with content, maybe, but we actually have so much content. Mm-hmm. The struggle was actually organizing it. Yeah, and um, figuring out what to cover next. Yes. So. Yeah, believe it or not, there's a ton of repressed stories that. The establishment doesn't want you to hear. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> subscribe here. Yeah. yeah. We'll tell you all the secrets. So what's the what's the big takeaway here? So I have a couple quotes from Dr. Dorothy Lavinia Brown that I think really sum up her story and the message that we can learn from her. First, at, when describing her drive to persevere, she said, I tried to be not hard, but durable. So not emotionally closed off or ever wronging people or in any way, not losing her compassion, I guess, but tough. Like she could withstand the what was thrown at her and all of the struggles that she went to went through. So she retained her compassion while having a thick skin and just persevering. And I really, really like that quote. Like I've just had it on my mind for the past couple of weeks. Yeah. I, I really like it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we should have some merch. I know, uh, right? Yeah. On our, on our site, which we never, ever, ever promote, I realize. Oh, yeah, that's right. We have merch talk about on it. Redbubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'll let you get through your, your quote. Okay. <laughs> and then the last one is she was extraordinarily humble. And she when people asked her about her status as a role model for other young physicians, she was proud of her accomplishments in her words, not because I have done so much, but to say to young people that it can be done, which was also like Rita Levi Montalcini, who was just very passionate about encouraging education for young people. So Mm. they've really carved this path, they break the glass ceiling, and then they want to reach down and pull the other people from underrepresented groups after them people of color, women, they want to make it easier for the people who are following them, showing them that it can be done. They don't want to just break the ceiling and then drop the ladder for everyone else. Yeah. They actually want to make lasting change in the world. Yeah. We we also, I mean, we often talk about these first that are Mm -hmm. very, 
like sort of monumental event or just like, you know, our first woman of color or woman and woman mm-hmm. of color and Asian woman, yeah. <laughs> black mm-hmm. woman, uh, yeah. vice president that right. we just have. Mm-hmm. But actually there's a lot that comes with that. Like yeah. nobody really like being a first is probably feels good for a second, mm-hmm. but like then you're the only. Yes. Right. Yes. Like that, mm-hmm. that's the, that's kind of the, the, the bleak side of it is that, you know, the outlook is that, I'm the first person here, which means I'm the only person here. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes that that is not uh, follow through. Mm-hmm. So. And I I would like to say something about Kamala Harris in particular. There's a lot of, maybe there's things in her past that a lot of us don't agree with. She's not perfect, I guess. Yeah. And a lot of people have been really vocal about that lately online, about how she's not a great fit or whatever they're like we don't want her to represent all women or women of color whatever the point is people have said if we waited for the perfect woman to come around we would be waiting forever and we sure didn't wait for the perfect men to hold these positions in the past so yeah so maybe she's the first she's breaking that glass ceiling but then others are going to follow Mm -hmm. and that's the point she doesn't need to be a token. We can consider yeah. her as a person with yeah. all of her flaws and um, also qualifications because she is a very qualified and professional person. Oh, yeah. So I think that's a better way to frame it. We did the same thing to Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And, and Barack we, Obama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the case of Hillary Clinton, um, it was like, you know, she supported the 94 crime bill. Mm-hmm. And yeah, those things were bad. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. But as we've seen in the last four years, what did we get from Trump? So people didn't want to vote for Hillary Mm -hmm. because they didn't like her. So they voted for nobody. And it turned out was predominantly Trump. And now Mm -hmm. we're more than a quarter million deaths in through coronavirus. He started pulling back all the bills and legislation. Mm -hmm. We had literal concentration camps for children at our border. Yeah. Let's not forget that. Completely tore the country apart Mm -hmm. um, because... Hillary Clinton wasn't a perfect candidate, mm-hmm. yes. uh, but she was the most qualified candidate. Mm-hmm. And like Barack Obama said, she might have been the most qualified candidate ever yeah. for presidency. She probably was. I think still to this day, she's mm-hmm. probably the most qualified candidate yeah. uh, to, to run for that office mm-hmm. with her years of service. Um, but now we have uh, Kamala Harris and she's also very qualified mm-hmm. and she's very strong. Yes. And... I just feel like, you know, the team that we have with her and Joe Biden is not, you know, the liberal dream. Yeah. But I feel like we'll be very successful. Mm-hmm. And once they get in, um, and e- even now they're already working on trying to turn the country around. Right. But the important thing, I think, is for all the people who started following politics in the past four years because things were so bad. It's not time to just turn your brain off and stop paying attention. Like, it's actually, we need to be just as vigilant, if not more so, to actually get better things accomplished and to make the people who are leading us stick to what is best for the people. Yeah. The fight is definitely not over. No. For some people, it's just beginning. (laughs) And Georgia, we need you to pull through. Yes. We really need you to come through in January. It's not over yet. I'm going to start writing letters, I think. There's like letter writing campaigns for people to vote in Georgia. Really? Yeah. Okay. Just put my name on the bottom of it. (laughs) All right. I will. (laughs) All right. So with that, yeah, I'll close it out. So we have never advertised our Red Bubble site. 
um, on this podcast, mm-hmm. surprisingly, because uh, we just always forget about it. But mm-hmm. we have lots of Reclaim the Bench merch that you can buy. You can get COVID masks. You can get <laughs> uh, mugs, mm-hmm. T-shirts, journals. Am I missing anything? I think there's like 50 different products. Shower curtain. Yeah, yeah, some weird stuff. So the holidays are coming up. So go to redbubble.com and then you can search Reclaim the Bench. And we can also link it on our website. We'll put a link on our website. Yeah, if it's not already there. Yeah, we we can put a link. And other than that, just continue to support us by subscribing to Mm -hmm. Apple, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave suggestions on our website for future episodes or things you liked or didn't like. Uh, Read us uh, Mm -hmm. five stars. Please. Yeah. Only five stars. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't have anything Uh, nice to say, uh, don't say anything. uh, Support us. And uh, because it really does help, follow us on social media. And if you still want to support us, um, you can always donate um, on our website at Mm reclaimthebench.com. And we thank you again for all your support. For people who have donated so far. Yeah. And I'd just like to add one more person we didn't mention at Mm. the beginning of the episode who donated money. And I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing her name right because when I spoke to her before, I didn't. And the individual I want to thank is Natalia Mart. Uh, I hope I pronounced her last name right (laughs) this time. Um, she is a third year law student and I also believe a PhD student in sociology oh, wow. at the university at Buffalo and she donated some money, um, some time ago. So thank you for your support. Awesome. Also, I would like to thank the other members of our team. Uh, Jay does a lot on the audio editing and the website production. Uh, Amvidi helps us out with writing written synopses of the episodes and um, providing feedback. And also my new sister-in-law, Erin, has also started helping us out with some video editing. So thank you to all of you. We really couldn't do this without you. And with that, I mean, take care of yourselves, everyone. Remember that finding your happiness is very important, even when times are uncertain. And remember to be hard, but no. That's not right. To be not hard, but durable. (laughs) Remember to be not hard, but durable. Yes. (laughs) Don't be hard, please. (laughs) Be kind to other people. Try to remember that we're all going through a lot right now. And kindness is what's really going to pull us through. So we will see you next time. And also, don't forget to subscribe to Reclaim the Bench on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave a review. This is one of the best ways to support our mission of amplifying the voices of those silenced in scientific and medical discovery. For even more content, including exclusive interviews or a chance to chat with us live, become a Reclaim the Bench patron at Patreon. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Reclaim the Bench. Also, stop by ReclaimTheBench.com to see what's on the agenda and to leave comments or suggestions on what topics you'd like to see us cover next. And if you'd like to further support our podcast, you can donate through our website. Funds will help us to maintain the infrastructure necessary to continue delivering you content. 